A number of recent studies in JAMA and the New England Journal of Medicine have brought to light the increased risks of heart attacks for patients taking Avandia. So what is the fallout from Avandia? You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a special series, Focus on Diabetes. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill, and joining me today is David Cliff, an expert on the diabetic industry and publisher of Avandia and the Diabetic Market. David, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So what happened to Avandia, David? Was it conspiracy? Was it one person trying to bring down GlaxoSmithKline? Or do you really think that that class of drugs is dangerous? Well, the thiazine dions, the TZDs, you know, there's two of them. There's Avandia and there's Actos. When the meta-analysis was published, there was an inherent doubt put in the mind of millions of patients. I mean, you're talking about Avandia. Is a $3.5 billion franchise of drugs. You have a Vandia, you have a Vandamet, which is a combination of Vandia and Metformin. Right. Um, yeah, they were combining it with everything. Yeah, under the exactly. Sun. And I don't know if a Vandia got a raw deal or not. What I do know is when Dr. Nissan published his meta analysis, what he basically said was you've got a patient population that's predisposed to cardiovascular risk. Everybody knows with diabetes that that's a risk. Why give them anything that may increase that risk, especially when there are other therapies that they can take that don't increase that risk and are as effective in controlling, you know, A1Cs, blood glucose, et cetera? You've brought up an interesting point that there are a lot of therapies out there that do the same thing, and none of them have really translated into... Cures, they're all treatments, which is like the greatest thing for a drug company ever <laughs> to come up with something someone has to take forever. But nothing's really transformed the diabetic market. These people are still going to be diabetics. They're still going to die and still get the complications, and they may die a little later. Well, basically— So it's, it's a great business. <laughs> Unfortunately, it is a great business. I mean, the fact of the matter is that diabetes is a disease that you can control. You cannot cure. And— what good control means is that you're going to either delay, but you're not going to avoid what I call the inevitable. I've spoken to patients that have been diabetic for 30, 40 years under great control that, you know, in their later years, they develop, you know, heart problems, amputations, blindness, whatever. You know, I've been writing Diabetic Investor for 10 years, and I've been hearing about a cure since the day I started writing. And unfortunately, we're really no closer today and I speak to some of the most intelligent researchers around the globe, not just here in the United States, but, you know, literally all over the globe. And I think the most telling comment that was ever said to me is one of my researchers said to me, he said, Dave, we're not even really sure what causes diabetes. Right. How can we cure it? Right. So you got diabetes when you were about 35. I was about 35 years old. And you were not grossly overweight. No. So were you diagnosed with type 1 or type 2? I affectionately call myself a one and a half. When I was diagnosed, they classified me as a type 2. My uh, pancreas was producing some insulin, but not very much. So what do you think would make a 35-year-old develop diabetes? The only thing I can think of is a virus. I wish I knew the answer to that question. I don't. My story is not, unfortunately, unique. I've met so many people, friends of mine, colleagues, whatever, who are my age, you know, and they went through the exact same thing. And in fact, you know, really a very close friend of mine, one of my best friends, almost, you know, had the exact same experience. He wasn't overweight. There was nothing, you know, that you could see, you know, he exercised, he, you know, 
just developed diabetes, and we don't, we have no idea why. What are you taking these days? What drugs are you uh, pounding uh, yourself? I'm strictly on insulin. I use the uh, Omnipod insulin delivery system. It's a, a wireless insulin pump. That's the only therapy I use. I use uh, Novolog. It's a short-acting insulin that's inside the pump. How many diabetics are on a pump? Out of the 22 million people with diabetes, there's about a half a million worldwide that are on an insulin pump therapy. And who's making the pumps? The leading company in insulin pumps is Medtronic. They own a company called Minimed. They bought them... I think it's five or six years ago for about $4 billion. They own about 70% of the market. Animus, which is owned by Johnson & Johnson, is number two in terms of market share. They have about 10 to 12% of the market. And then the rest of the market is divided between uh, Roche. Uh, they bought a company called Dysotronic. Obviously, Omnipod, which is made by a company called Insulet. Insulet, if not, is still independent. I suspect that they will end up being acquired at some point. It's a rather innovative, not rather, it is an innovative therapy because there's no tubing involved. I mean, if we weren't on radio, you'd be able to see that there's no way somebody could look at me and say, hey, this guy's on an insulin pump. It's a disposable. Uh, I wear it for three days, refill a new one. Wait, on. You say it's wireless, so who's it talking to? There's a device called a PDM, a personal diabetes manager. It's kind of like a PDA, like a Palmer Trio, yeah. that controls your pod. So the pod is attached to your body. There's uh, automatic insertion of the cannula, the little tube that delivers the insulin into your body. The PDM controls, you know, it's basically like the computer part of it. It tells the pod what to do. In my own case, I have what's called a basal rate. That's the amount of insulin I get on a regular, consistent basis. And then whenever I eat or have a snack, uh, I do something called the bolus, and that's basically you know, more insulin to deal with the incoming carbohydrate. You don't have something inside you constantly checking your sugars and talking to the, to the uh, pod? I, I do wear the uh, Dexcom continuous monitor. The readings from the Dexcom uh, continuous monitor go to the Dexcom receiver. It would be wonderful if all these devices talk to one another, and that is starting to happen but we're still a little bit of ways away from that. If you've just joined us, you're listening to a special segment focused on diabetes on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill, and I'm in studio today talking with David Cliff, publisher of The Diabetic Investor and a diabetic himself. We're currently talking about diabetic pumps, and David has one. So there's a few companies out there that are in the pump market, and uh, you think that that is a nice niche place to be. There's definitely a role for pump therapy. How do you even decide when to put your patient on a pump? I mean, it's got to be a, a certain type of personality. Yeah, you, you must be a very committed patient. In my own experience, I followed what I call a fairly typical therapy progression. I was on oral medications. That didn't work too well. I switched from that to a 70-30 blend of insulin. That worked okay. <laughs> then I switched to uh, Lantus and Novolog, and that worked really good. And I was on what's called MDI, multiple daily injection. And because of my lifestyle, you know, I travel a lot. Um, I don't keep normal hours. When you're on MDI, you really have to be very regimented. A pump allowed me more freedom in my life. You have to be an educated patient. You have to understand carb counting. You know, um, I run marathons, so I have to understand how exercise affects my blood sugars and it takes time. There's no magic bullet in diabetes. You're talking about a, there's 150 million people with diabetes across the world, and everyone is a little bit different. 
And it's not like if you have a headache, you take two Advils or whatever. You know, my older brother, he's 10 years older than me, he was just diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. He's controlling it just fine using oral medications. You know, everybody's a little bit different. So back to the orals. When Avandia got whacked <laughs> by Dr. Nissen, what happened to uh, Tap Pharmaceuticals? Did their stock price well, bump Takeda, that which makes, I'm sorry, Takeda, not t- Tap, for yeah, Actos. Takeda makes uh, Actos, which is another TZD, uh, same class as Avandia. And strangely enough, even though the two drugs are from the same class, mm-hmm. Actos has actually shown cardiovascular benefits, not drawbacks. However, there are still, you know, any TZD, whether it's a van or actos, you have uh, weight gain is a problem. Right. They're kind of guilty by association. Right. You have edema. I mean, there's a, you know, there's a variety of issues. So what a lot of doctors did is they said, okay, uh, Merck came out with a new drug called Genuvia. Mm-hmm. So what a lot of doctors said was, well, we're not going to take any chances whatsoever. You know, we know that there might be a problem with Avandia. We're not sure if there's a problem with actos. So why even take a chance? You know, there Keep are legal simple. issues right. here. Um, and doctors know all too well about malpractice. And so they said, well, let's take Genuvia, which is a new drug from Merck, uh, from a different class. It's a DPP-4. And uh, let's put our patients on that. The results so far are mixed. Genuvia has, it's not as robust of a drug as either Vandio or Actos. But on the flip side, at least currently, we haven't heard of any major adverse events. Not yet. Not yet. Now that they're getting so much more of the market share, they've got to be careful what you wish for. Every drug, I don't care what drug you're on, has risk. And there's no way that a drug can be investigated long enough. You know, if we, if we put it in trials for 10 years, nobody, you know, we never have drugs. What is the cost of bringing a drug to market for Realistically, diabetes? the cost of bringing a drug to market in a disease state like diabetes, you're talking about 750 to a billion dollars. I mean, you're talking about years of clinical trials. I mean, I wrote an issue about the development of Bieta from Amlin and Everybody looks at Bayeta and says, oh, it's an overnight success story. And I said, yeah, it's an overnight success story that took 15 years to do. And, you know, you're talking about countless studies and, and, you know, it's amazing what a company has to go through. One of the the easiest stories that I share with people always complain about the cost of drugs. And I said, well, I sat with the FDA once and they were showing me books. Now, these books were four to five inches thick, you know, those binders. And I said, what's in there? And the guy said, well, this drug company, I I won't name which one it was, wants to change one of the ingredients in their drugs. Well, the ingredient, it was a pill, did nothing except hold the pill together. But yet they had to go through all of this paperwork just to change that. So it's a very expensive process. Let's uh, have you put on your thinking hat and open your crystal ball. Let's look 10 years down the road. What do you think people are going to be taking for their diabetes? What do you think will be the greatest impact on the diabetic market? The thing I'm most excited about right now are drugs that promote islet cell regeneration. You know, islet cells are what produce insulin. There are several drugs under development right now that appear to take an islet cell that's not working well and regenerate it so it works well. Bieta, which is already on the market, there's some early evidence that Bieta does that. There are, off the top of my head, four or five very early stage drugs that are working along that same. That's, that, to me, is the most exciting area. I always preface my remarks because, although 10 years sounds like a long time, and it is, this is something that has been really been worked on. Islet cell regeneration has been, you know, 
we had islet cells transplants back in the you know late 80s to early 90s and everybody said oh my god this is a cure for diabetes you know we're replacing islet cells well unfortunately those islet cells transplants didn't hold so then the science shifted somewhat and now we're kind of saying well can we take patients that have islet cells that, that aren't working too well and repair them and it's more exciting but you know i don't know if it'll be here 10 years from today i hope so i am cautiously optimistic on that note, I'd like to thank our guest, David Cliff, for coming into the studio today. Thank you very much for having me. We've been talking about the diabetic sector, and David is the publisher of The Diabetic Investor. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell, and you've been listening to a special segment, Focus on Diabetes, on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. And thank you for listening.